You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Welcome to Sagas and Sass. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Nick, Jonathan, and Nami. And we are here because we have a lot of thoughts and feelings about Lee Bardugo's Grishaverse. This is Season 1, Episode 16, covering the newest Grishaverse installment, Rule of Wolves. If you're watching live, join us in the chat, or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sagas and Sass to continue the conversation. And just a reminder, the views expressed in this show are those of the host as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. All right. Um, so just to get this, I don't want to say get this out of the wigs. That sounds bad, but we ran our giveaway. We have a winner. Um, I will be obviously contacting this person directly, but her name, their name is, just to be safe, their name is Glenda at GT Cookie. That's G-T-K-O-O-K-I-E uh, on Twitter. So congratulations, Glenda. I will be contacting you very soon um, to get this uh, prize pack shipped out to you. And thank you to everybody who entered. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do another giveaway eventually. This I, like It was kind of fun like organizing this and being like, ooh, who's going to win these cool things? So, <laughs> All right. On that note. Uh, again, congratulations, but we have a very long uh, summary and discussion ahead of us, I'm sure. So kick it off, Nick. All right, buckle up, everyone, because this is going to be long. We've reached the end of the King of Scars duology, and so much happened in this book. We jumped right in with our only Makai chapter, and something new strange is afoot in Shuhan. There's some weird darkness blight thing that sweeps in and destroys everything in its path, like a kind of a miniature fold. It's really scary. It even swallows her niece, who she had hoped would one day succeed her. It's the most relatable Makai gets, though, because she's mostly the worst. Well, uh, she and Broom tie for the worst. <laughs> There's also Rasmus. He's also the worst. There's just a lot of terrible people in this book. We jump from there to Nina, who is in the ice core with Hana and her family, who are apparently none the wiser about Nina and Hana being behind the destruction and Gafala and the Grisha miracles, quote unquote, that have been occurring in Fjordo. Nina is sneaking information to Ravka through the spy network and trying to undermine Broom as much as she can, but she soon learns about a plan to invade Can she get to the information to Nikolai and Zoya in time? Ravka is outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, but not outplanned. And luckily, Nikolai has his right-hand woman, Zoya. He sends her to negotiate with Hiram Shink and for reinforcements from Kirch, but she has no luck. But they also suspected she wouldn't succeed. Meanwhile, Nikolai mounts a defensive against the Fjordans, and all seems lost as the Fjordans have more tanks and soldiers than does with Hiram. Luckily, Ravka's overtures to the Kirch a ruse. The real eyes, the Zemini, show up to help by dosing the Grisha with an antidote to Parim. This turns the tides for Ravka and they're able to win the battle, but that's far from winning the war. It doesn't help that Nikolai is also facing increasingly prevalent rumors that he is a bastard, which threaten to dethrone him, especially as the Fjordans have not just letters from Nikolai's mother, but his real father, who they have imprisoned. And they plan on forcing him to testify. 
This means that Nina needs to get close to the man who is supposedly the true heir to the Ravkin throne, which leads to Hana agreeing to become the Fjerdin equivalent of a debutante, and then ending up gaining the favor of Brasmus, the Fjerdin crown prince, when he collapses in front of her and she instinctively heals him. Hana and Nina's plot evolves as Hana slowly continues to heal him, all the while hoping that he can be a good leader and counteract her father's warmongering. Unfortunately, Rasmus turns out to be a sadistic asshole reminiscent of Joffrey from Game of Thrones, but we'll come back to that later. Because... Back in Ravka, Nikolai and Zoya decide that they have to do whatever they can to stop the spread of the strange mini-folds that are appearing around the world. To do this, they consult with the Darkling, who says that he will help them if they agree to set up a meeting between him and Alina. But because this is a Darkling, things obviously go wrong. He regains his powers by stabbing a thorn, uh, a thornwood thorn through Alina and Mal's hands and then escapes to go find the Starless One followers. At times, there seems to be some inkling that he might actually be trying to find himself or some shit, but nah. In the end, he's mostly still a self-serving asshole. For instance, he leads the cultists to the war front, but only because he wants to perform a miracle and reveal that he has returned. And because there are about 100 plot lines to wrap up in this book, we've got Princess Eri of Shuhan finding out that her sister, Queen Maki, has tried to kill her twice. And she finally decides to do something about it by sneaking back into Shuhan while Maki travels to Ravka for what she thought was Eri and Nikolai's wedding, but turns out to be a wedding celebration for Genya and David. Either way, the wedding is ill-fated. The Fjordans bomb the city and the palace, and David is killed. Sweet, good David. If you didn't have a cry over his death at funeral, you are cold-hearted. Yeah, that's it. This was said a lot more gently in the summary, but you're cold-hearted, damn it. But that's a bit of a digression, because a very important thing happens during the ensuing battle. Nikolai uses his demon to fight the Fjordans. This comes into play again later, but we'll get to that eventually, because it's time for part two. At this point, we get a new POV, as Mayu becomes our eyes and ears in Shuhan, and we learn more about their politics, which turn out to be quite maddening, to say the least. Sure, Maki and Eri, his grandmother takes back the throne and frees the Karagud, but Maki isn't punished and the Karagud are placed under honorary permanent house arrest, and Queen Grandma refuses to help Ravka. Also, let's not forget that all this time Zoya and Nikolai have spent the entire book awkwardly flirting each other, but they simply can't be together. They want to, but they can't. And it's arguable whether that is more important than the fact that we actually had a few chapters with the crows. Nikolai and Zoya travel to Ketherdam, where Kaz helps them steal some titanium for the bombs that David has been working on. And we get to see some more of Jasper and Waylon as well. It's all very wonderful, and of course leaves you wanting more crows. We just wish that the reveal that Zoya's half-suli had also included an entire passage about how she is white-passing. We'll uh, talk about that later, because... Yikes! All right, Nikolai also uses his demon again during the heist, and literally everyone involved sees it, so oops. It would actually be nice if that's all we had to worry about for a while, but the story thunders on, featuring a meetup between Nikolai and his real dad that's pretty emotional because Magnus is actually a good dude. And then, bam, more Ravka versus Fierda battles. Seriously, we are totally thrown into these battles. Sure, there's this whole thing about Rasmus eyeballing Hana as a potential future wife, Nina discovering that the prince's bodyguard Joran is the kid who killed Matthias, and some chotes adorbs Nina X Hana love declarations and sexy times. 
But then they're caught by Hannah's mom when she comes to whisk them away to some sort of feared and floating fortress. Say that five times fast because the Fjordans are ready to press their advantage and attack Ravka on two fronts. So like as if Nina doesn't have enough to deal with and as if we don't want to totally celebrate the fact that she and Hannah finally got together, Rasmus drags Hannah off to watch the battle with him alone, which presumably means he's also about to propose. Unfortunately, Nina can't even prevent that from happening because she's kidnapped by the Operat. Honestly, how and why is this dude even still around? Insert angry emoji voice, uh, insert angry face emoji here. Blah. Once again, things obviously aren't looking good for the Robkins until Zoya goes full badass and electrocutes the water with the feared and ships and soldiers still in it, basically murdering the fuck out of all of them and leaving us thinking, holy shit, she is powerful. Without knowing how powerful she really is until she finds out that the opera has Nina, rushes to confront him, opens that door to Jiris, and becomes a motherfucking dragon who then saves Nina and flies off to also save the day at the second battlefront. Granted, Zoya's not the only monster there. Nikolai unleashes his demon again, the Darkling helps it take on the Fjord and War Machines, and the Kergoods show up and lend a hand as well. Seriously, talk about we're all monsters now, eh? As you can imagine, the Fjordans give up. At Nina's behest, Zoya spares them, which leads to the Darkling starting a Santa Zoya chant. Turns out Nina did a pretty good job of selling all those Grisha as saint seeds, because many Fjordans join in on the chant. So much for Jarl Brum and all his dirty work. Ha! Sadly, though, there appears to be a real Fjordan tragedy going on back at the floating fortress. When Nina returns and discovers that Hana is dead, Having apparently fallen from the observation tower, it's painfully obvious that Rasmus killed her. So between that and the Joran reveal, it seems as if Nina is about to murder literally every Fjordan in sight. But back on the Fjordan side, as Nina returns, she discovers that Hannah is dead. Her body had broken from a fall from the observation tower. Is that twice? Or did I just... Yeah, yeah, no, back? that's that's twice. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we'll no, 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 it. my fault, my fault. <laughs> It also doesn't seem like Nikolai is going to get off easy here. The Fjordans have brought his ah, brought his parents out of exile to prove he's a bastard. Rather than fight it, though, Nikolai simply abdicates and immediately calls for Zoya to be the one dragon queen to rule them all. Well, all of the Ravkins, that is, and some Westerosi also. <laughs> Zoya gets the backing she needs, including wannabe Joffrey, a.k.s. Rasmus, announcing that he wants peace, which surprises just about everyone but Nina most of all. Zoya is real mad at Nikolai for this little coup, but she capitulates on the grounds that he stick around as her prince. Of course he agrees. Zoya lie forever, you all. Ah, shoot. And I accidentally lost it. That's okay. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more. Nina finally gets a moment alone with Rasmus. Only it's not really Rasmus. Turns out he basically attacked her. She killed him by mistake, then she tailored his body to look like her, tailored herself to look like him, and here we are. It's all basically perfect, because Hannah feels more like himself than his, this body. He and Nina plan to marry and to rule Fjorda justly, which means we can get a good show of trans rights and a positive future for Fjorda. Amazing. Which brings us all to that last hanging plotline, the Darkling and the Minifolds. It's all a bit rushed, but Zoya, Nikolai, Jenya, and the Darkling go off on a little adventure and find a group of monks who reveal that the only way to stop the blight, blights, from spreading is for someone to have their heart pierced by a thorn for the special thornwood, except it's not quite that easy. This person will live in eternal pain, basically dying over and over again, yet for some reason the Darkling insists on being this martyr. 
Not for nothing, of course. He wants to be remembered as a saint and all that. But still, this was a plot twist we didn't see coming, especially after being in the Darkling's head for several chapters as he continued to think and act like an ass. So that's the end. Or is it? Considering Zoya and, well, just about everyone else doesn't really want the Darkling to have the forgiveness of martyrdom, last minute she decides to send Nikolaus Sturmhund off to Ketterdam to meet with Kaz, who's clearly the only person who can find what they need to put an end to things once and for all. Talk about setting up a potential new Six of Crows book. We leave things off with Zoya deciding to try to free the Darkling from this living hell because he doesn't deserve the forgiveness for martyrdom. And the setup for a potential new Six of Crows book. But that, my friends, is a story for another day because... Wow, do we have a lot to unpack. Oof. That was a mouthful. There's a lot, yeah. It was so, yeah, that, that was so long. I don't blame anybody for losing places, and I'm sorry about the 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 double. I have no idea what happened with the double typing. I must have copied and pasted something. We we had, you know, with, with one person writing it, one person editing it, and four people reading it, there were bound to be mistakes <laughs> in this long-ass <laughs> summary. But all of that said, uh, on to our discussion. You did miss the point of the day, like way earlier. I want to say around like two p.m. today, where I was in the dock and Nick was writing the summary, and I just kept writing "Hi, Nick" in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> we had our own little conversation going. It was great. <laughs> I wish those comments were still. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's hard to. It's hard, yeah, it's hard to even know where to start here. Um, in the first Nina chapter, when they're doing that, um, which is really the first chapter in the book outside of, you know, Maki, Makai, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, Makai. Which is basically like a prologue more than anything. Um, you know, they, they have that little play and uh, Alina, you know, like is is obviously in it, like as a saint, uh, but Lizavita, well, I guess they don't know about Lizavita. Um, but it seems a bit odd to have like this saint that's been gone, you know, five ever in there. And then of course, Zoya, which is just, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I, I was, I was, uh, I was like, really Zoya. Okay. Like, obviously by the end, it all like pans out, works out, whatever. Um, somebody who, who put the thing in here about Zoya being I put the thing in there. I okay. was like, it was funny because to me, while I was reading this, I was like, ha, ah, of course Nina wants everybody to think Zoya's a saint. She's batshit. She's like, like terrifying as heck. So if you could convince everybody that Ravka's leader is like secretly, like Ravka's like second in command is basically a saint. It's like hella good political agenda. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but Lizavita kind of makes sense because she seems to be just one of the more popular ones. And I think with the exception of Alina, they're all like old as heck anyway. So I think, in my mind, this was more like Nina picking her favorite saints and also shouting girl power and being a Zoya fangirl. <laughs> also, just because yeah. I'm pretty sure she did it because Zoya would be mad at her for it. You know, to be fair, like, I, I wrote some of my thoughts, like, as things were still, like, I started writing them oh, as I was sure. reading the book. And then I I read the second half so quickly. Like, I would say the second half, I read, like, a good portion of it Thursday night and the rest of it as soon as I woke up Friday morning last week. So, like, I didn't have time to note things as I was going along. And so like, I think my end thoughts are a lot more cohesive, but yeah, I, I mean, it's like the thing about Zoya being in that, it makes a lot more sense, especially as she's still living that you'd, they'd want to push, you know, somebody else as a saint other than, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on them. Adric and, and Leone, you know, and, and Zoya is a good, 
option because everybody kind of she she's she's like the demon in their dreams. She's the she is the she is their monster. You know what I mean? So turning her into somebody who you know practices miracles and is good uh, makes a lot more sense. Like in in hindsight, now that I you know think about it. Um, so uh, and 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 you know one of the things that also came from that chapter or from earlier on in the book was Nina, you know, thinking about how she wants Fierda to stop seeing Broom and the Driscella as men to be feared and to acknowledge them for like what they are, which is bullies, bullies, you know? Um, and it's a, it was a quote that I put, you know, down to discuss, but the quote itself doesn't matter so much as the idea of the fact that they really are just scared bullies. Um mm -hmm that they shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't be worshipped. Um, but then at the same time, she also doesn't want to see Broom destroyed because she knows he's like Hannah's father and she knows that's going to hurt Hannah's feelings. It's funny how that also evolves and changes throughout the book, though. <laughs> Super complicated emotions. Yeah. Speaking of it also Broom, actually, to... Go for okay. it. I was oh, just going to say, it's very interesting to me how that also lines up with abuse that like that specifically the line and hang on let me quote this here uh in moments like these when he was kind when he was reasonable and gentle he seemed less like a monster than a man doing his best for the, his country it's very much like if you've experienced abuse you know how those like quote unquote good moments can make you feel like you don't, you're not really contextualizing everything and that the bad moments maybe aren't as bad, but they really are. And we really get to see those sides of Broom as a father who is maybe trying to do his best, uh, but we also get to see all of the terrible abusive aspects of him both uh, you know, as a leader of this country who's doing horrible things, but also the way that he treats his wife and child. Yeah, it's one of those things that I didn't expect from this book, but um, Ilva Broom, like Hannah's mom, really became a favorite in this book because, mm -hmm. you know, she's clearly a survivor. 1, she's clearly, yeah, like she's clearly faced a lot at Jarl's hands and she's clearly been abused by him. And she, stay strong and a lot of like her moments of dialogue in this are about like how feared and women are strong and how they are made and how they must endure and she specifically like there's a point where um we're uh hannah or what well, we're we're yeah when hannah's off with rasmus and like zoya like electrocutes all the soldiers and their like initial like their one prong of their two pronged attack like super fails um, Nina's immediately like, holy shit, I have to go get Hana. And Ilva says, very well, but stay out of their way, Mila. After a loss like this, soldiers look for someone to punish. Like, she she knows. She's been there. And, like, you know, every single moment that, like, Nina notices, like, the darkness in Jarl that, like, shows up. Like, how, like, he, she basically talks about how Jarl likes his women, like, you know, like, meek until at meek and like you know scared of like their enemies until it doesn't suit him anymore and like you know all of this talk about that just like 
I want a whole story about Yilva and like what she's been through and how she's succeeding. And just like, she basically at one point in the book, like tells Hannah that she's like, I should have sent you off to live with like our Hedget like family. Like, and like literally like this woman had, like she knows that Jarl isn't good, but she sticks by him because she's like, it seems like she's protecting Hannah. And in my mind, I hope that now she thinks that Hannah's dead, that she can leave him. But also, you know, that's not always the case with abuse and she's not any less strong for not being able to leave. She's, God, I love, I love her. I love her so much and I just want to keep her safe, even though she's like, you know, obviously old enough to be my mother, but I want to keep her safe. <laughs> that's why you want to keep her safe. And, and I mean, you know, I also like this, not only does the, this stuff about Broom like reflect like abusive relationships, but also just like, I mean, the, the fact that like, I, I honestly that somebody can be like a terrible person in terms of like what they believe, like uh, I think somebody can be like a terrible racist and still be kind mm -hmm. to their family. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Like, like there's the, everybody's an onion with layers and you know, it's like you want to, and I think that's kind of the theme with, at least with the feared and characters is that with broom, I think they, you know, Nina knows he's not going to change um, but she sees him as more than just a straight up villain, but, you know, also like, you know, the, like with Rosmus where how much they really try to force their hand in terms of like making him a, you know, oh, he's not that bad and we can make him better. Oh shit. He's really bad. Maybe we can't. But it, it, the idea that, you know, somebody who, I mean, Hannah especially really, even after she finds out what Rasmus is, she still kind of wants to believe that he can change and that she can change him. So it's, it's, it's definitely like a theme going on there with the feared ends. <laughs> well, 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 she definitely changed him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. To yeah, no, I think... Lose. I think the other thing that like really struck with me is that like, even though it was very much like, you know, like wanting to help the Fjordans change, it was also like being able to take a step back and acknowledge that some people couldn't. And that's what I really liked about the Rasmus storyline because like, you know, Nina had sort of already decided this about Jarl. And even though you see her seeing like his humanness around it, like she still like decides this and is like, no, he's still absolutely terrible because you see that every nice mm -hmm. thing he's doing is like hiding another terrible yeah. aspect of his personality. Yeah. But like, you know, with Rasmus, she really did want to believe like from the beginning that he was a good person. And it's very interesting to see that like, you know, you know, sometimes you do want to believe in the better of people, but some people are just bad. And it is important to be able to recognize you know when a person is you know raised in a bad circumstance and can change like for example matthias and joran or versus they're raised in a bad circumstance and they just grew up bad and they are you know full of hate and very sad now like rasmus god i hate rasmus. Uh, well, you can all you can also grow up in a very good circumstance and still be a jackass this is true too oh, of course yeah. i think that that's I want to say that I I, I want to say or hope or believe that that's generally less that happens less often than than people who grow up Terror in bad circumstances and change for the better. <laughs> I don't know, honestly. I'm I don't not. Think I'm so. like, I feel like I'm the last person in the world who should be thinking yeah, these no, things. But I'm trying to be positive, guys. I'm trying to be more positive. You just want to be. 
optimistic it's funny yeah yeah i don't know why that's, that's, this is a new thing for me this is a, this is a new street that i'm walking down um, <laughs> <laughs> all right so um also, speaking of saints, by the way, because we were, you know, before, before we got off on that like mini tangent there, um, we were talking about the the play with the saints. Um, wow, there is so much of the saints in this book, like all Sweet. throughout this entire book. It is the theme of the book. And like, I was kind of, I, I kind of wondered if maybe they didn't rush the lives of the saints publication. And I honestly think they maybe did still. And, and I think our, our, uh, but a month ago or so when we covered lives of the saints, I think by our discussion, it seemed pretty obvious that we weren't really all that like, you know, it was, it wasn't what we expected after like something like language of thorns. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it seemed rushed. And I think, I think maybe it is, it was because they definitely did need to get that book out before this. And I really hope that, the majority of people read Lives of the Saints before reading this book because so much more of it made so much more sense. Uh, I mean, there, there's just, there's so, it's not just the saints that we read about in Lives of the Saints. It's like constant, they're mentioning saints like left and right. It's like, whoa, Ravka's all of a sudden, like everybody's all of a sudden super like religious in this book, you know? It's one of those things that like, wow, I keep, I also keep saying that I just registered how much I say it's one of those things that like, <laughs> oh. I digress. It's one of those things that like <laughs> makes a lot of sense when you consider the agenda that Nina was trying to push because her whole point was, you know, making making Fjordans believe that the saints and that the saints are Grisha and that some of their saints are also Grisha and therefore all the Grisha are all are like the children of Gel. And therefore, Gel gets angry if you hurt, if like Grisha are persecuted and Grisha are feared in as well. Therefore, don't do that. So, like, the whole agenda having so much to do with the saints in that way, like, especially, like, I feel like we should have seen it coming because literally the ending of the last book was like, hey, notice how some of your main characters have become saints now. And the fact that we all weren't like, hmm, maybe they're going to go down this path makes me just kind of go, oh, well, duh. Of course, this was your plan. It's a good plan. It makes logical sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just very much like I, yeah. It, it, there's so much saints in this book that it's like I I almost feel bad for anybody who reads it without reading Lives of the Saints first because wow, like there's just so much more to pick out. I think if you've read Lives of the Saints, um, they're reading this but, book from the fear point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, <laughs> oh gosh, so so many things. Okay, so so just to just to kind of skip ahead a little bit, but honestly, I'll, I'll say this much: like after the you know, other than like the Nina stuff in the beginning, there's kind of a lot of like nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. Like I know a lot was happening. And we actually had, we taught, we all were talking about this as we all had first started reading. It. It's like, oh, a lot's happening. Wow, they're really rushing some things. But like, whoa, this is whatever was happening in the first half of the book is like nothing compared to the second. Um, and and the most the most important like thing uh, that happened in the first half of the book, even though this the really sad part of it, you know, happened in the second part is like David 
dying. Um, yeah. Like I, I was, I honestly was really mad about it. Like I was, Same. I was like, Genya has been through enough. Okay. <laughs> like she has been through enough and now she has to lose the love of her life. Like, I, I mean, and, and Nami and I talked about it and Nami made the point of like, but you know, Lee killed off the one character that we're all like, everybody's going to be sad about nobody. Did anybody not like David? I don't know anybody who didn't like David. Either you were neutral about him or you liked him. He's a good yeah, guy. I liked him, but like, he wasn't one of my faves and I didn't realize, like, I, I would not have guessed, Oh, David's death is really going to make me sad. But then when he died, I was like, I'm just going to sob. I'm just going to ugly. I that. think everybody sort of had that feeling, you know, because I think there was either you were obsessed with David and he was your, one of your faves, or it was like, yeah, David's cool. Cool. And yeah. I think the majority of the fandom is like, yeah, David's cool. And there's that moment in Zoya's POV, like during the funeral, where she was like, I, or maybe it's in a later thing, but she basically says something along the lines of, I never thought I would shed tears for David. And I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure that's the entire fandom right now. Like, just like, what what's happening? We're crying about David. But also, goddamn Lee, just like yeah. big out, yeah. big sad. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't, I don't know. Like, I've definitely like choked up, teared up a little bit, in, like during parts of the previous books. Uh, I've not cried, straight up cried at any of these books the way I did at David's funeral. Um, like, and then, like you said, Nick, it's like he wasn't necessarily one of my favorites, but it's like mm -hmm. I, I didn't realize how much I just kind of liked him and counted on him. And it was he—he he really, it was almost like he was a little bit of like uh, uh, comedic, you know, relief in a way with his his little yeah. things with get. It was his things with Genya with the notebook yeah. and like I, it just, I didn't realize how much I had really grown to like him since the you know original the first couple books like i yeah i yeah I was also like, one of the things that like gut punched me when they were reading from his book like of all the little things that he wrote down because he knew that he wouldn't be able to just like call those to mind but he you know went through the whole process of being like here are some good compliments to give kenya here like like that just shows a level of care in a character that, that that's just like heartbreaking to to know is gone now and it's partially the heartbreak of the character themselves and it's also partially the heartbreak of where the character uh stood for all these other characters that we care so deeply about he was kind of a moral compass for mm -hmm. a lot of the other characters. He was this amazing partner for Genya, who we have loved since the original trilogy. So even if you didn't necessarily have this like strong connection to that specific character, you still have all these moments that are connected to all these other characters, as well as it being just like an important moment for that character that I think is part of the reason why it was so sad. The other thing that really struck me, like the notebook, like absolutely destroyed me. And yeah. like, you see, you know, the other scenes between Genya and David, like throughout the series and how like they really evolved 
as people mm-hmm. and as a couple, because like, you know, David is really in his own world at the beginning of the Grishaverse. You know, he knows his research, he knows like his science and that's it. And by the end of it, you see him like actively working with Genya to like, you know, to work to bring her joy and to pay attention to her and like how his actions, he is working hard to be a good partner when he knows that that's not his instinctive way to behave. And it is mm-hmm. so, so important. And, yeah. you know, it's easy to look at this book and say, Nikolai is the most charming character. But honestly, I would objectively say that David is the most charming character. Because yes, Nikolai is charming. Yes, Nikolai is handsome. He speaks well. He's, you know, you want to love him. But David is the one that when it came down to it, like he's the one trying there and like working every single second in this relationship to give his partner what he knows his partner will appreciate. And that, oh my God, there was like the scene where um, Genya, like like David says the thing and Genya was like, oh, that was an opportunity for spontaneity. And David goes, ah, okay, like I'll write that down. And you're like, oh, what a Mm -hmm. joke he actually wrote it down later but then of course like the best part is genya's like well it's later we can still try it now and he's like yes okay try again and it's just it's so earnest and cute and good and wholesome and it's just like god i can't believe david hashtag relationship goals now like try to grow like that for your partner and like and and like you know especially since he he pat like he dies like right after their wedding when he has that whole, um, you know, moment where it's like, I, I, I can't, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to look for the quote cause I'm pretty sure. Oh, he says, you know, he, he like spins her hair in his finger at one point and he's mm-hmm. just like marveling at like the perfect color of her hair. And then like his vow is, you know, I've seen your face in the making of the heart at the heart of the world. And like, Oh, I'm going to tear up right now. Stop. Oh, there's no one more beloved, genuine, safe, and brave and unbreakable. And it just brings back how he, like, compared her to, um, was it iron or steel or something like that? And one of the, he, he compared her to some sort of metal, you know, like, where, where he was like, your beauty is your armor, but, like, there's so much more to you. Like, how, how mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's just, oh, God. Uh, I don't know, Jonathan. Were you surprised that David was the one who died? I was just shocked that he was like. I figured there would be a major character death, but like he's not even that major. But somehow I feel like his death affected me more than well, almost any other character would. Well, in in the sense that he's always at the not at the front of any sort of battles. It sort of is the surprise. I would have thought it was going to be Tamar or or one of one of the twins. And uh, that was going to be the sacrificial lamb, so to speak, of, of non-main character death. What I would call non-main but significant character deaths that they that you were expecting. I, the other thing that, like, I noticed after the fact, like, when they go see the crows later and Wyland's looking at the plans and he, like, comments about, like, the weight of the nose is the problem as David's running off, the reason he's in the workshop is because he realized that the weight of the nose was the problem. And I'm pretty sure he was coming up with a solution for the missiles that he didn't even want to build at that moment. And that's why he was in the workshop when he was dying. You're right. Holy shit. Right? Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Sorry, what was that? He was building what? So, you know how- He didn't want to build the missiles. Right. I knew that. Yeah. And he was was thinking- when um remember when they go see the crows and you know 
um, Nikolai shows them, shows Wylan the plans, and Wylan is immediately like, oh, you're having problems with the weight of the nose of the missile. Yes, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I caught that too, yeah, yeah. sorry. And David I, runs I, off, and as he runs off, he's saying something about the nose, and I'm like, oh my god, like, he literally died doing the thing that he didn't want to do, but is only doing it because it's right to, it, because he needs to, to save his country. And like, Oh my God, it just hit on so many levels of like, David is so good. Also like speaking of David is so good. It brings me into like this weird aside that I had. Cause there's this moment where like, they're commenting on about like how far you can go in a war like this and still remain good. And like Tolia is like really talking about how like guys, like we have to stop at some point. And I just thought that was like such a, it was a poignant moment that really stuck out to me because people always like to have these fantasy stories where there's wars and it's like, yeah, war forever. We're just going to keep escalating bye, bitch. And like, there was like active discussion about, Hey guys, like, like if we keep making the shit, people will make bigger shit. But also at one point, can we not make bigger shit to make them not attack us with their shit? And it was just a lot of sad war contacts talks and goodbye, David, our moral compass. <laughs> All right, Ugh, enough about that. Because like, I don't need to start. I don't need to get into even more things and like end up tearing up about it again. My God, Tara, keep your shit together. Um, <laughs> there's just so much more. Um, so uh, we're actually doing better about this than I thought we would. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that the the main point about the David thing is like Lee really did kill like off the one. And I know other characters died, but like to be honest, I was a little bit like nobody else died. Like really, like, yeah. nobody else like no, major. absolutely. Like I was really expecting either Tolia or Tamar. Uh, and yeah, I that's kind of what I, that's what I thought. I kind of thought it would be Tolia. I because, really, really thought Tolia was going to die. Because you can't, at this point, like, you can't really kill off, like, half of the one lesbian couple. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, you can, but it would be bad. That so, would be really uh, bad. But, yeah, really bad. so. <laughs> um, but, yeah, anyway, so. so Crows, 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 crows. Like, like okay, this is fan service. We all know this is yeah. fan service. But oh, this yeah. mini heist thing, I just, I loved it. I. Yeah, 100%. It was it was completely unnecessary, let's be honest. They could have, they, there had to have been, they're, they're, you can't tell me the only titanium in the entire, whatever this world is called was in Ketterdam, but like. No, it was, the only, titanium, it was the only titanium they could afford because they couldn't afford anything. Well, well, they also introduced titanium as a plot device <laughs> in order to bring the back. Well, it, it was a bit of a MacGuffin, I'll agree, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and 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 when you say it was the only titanium they could afford, it was because they were stealing it. But right. like, I mean, but also like, like, I think they 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 knew that they're like maybe Shu Han had some. I don't know for sure about that. But like, they knew that like, the the Fierdens probably had some. It's like this was the only titanium that they could possibly get a hold of too. Like by by theft or any other way, they there was like very conveniently no other titanium, and like the Zemeni mm -hmm. don't have any. Like there's just no other titanium in this entire world except for <laughs> you know but whatever i don't even care like who gives a I, shit I, like, I, it's so good i don't care i don't care i know i'm probably like we're probably supposed to care but i just loved you know i loved that we we kind of went like full circle a bit like and and just like just like nikolai and genya genya and uh, no sh shut up i'm never saying genya nikolai and genya and um and and Zoya showed up in Crooked Kingdom. It was like we needed this. We needed this mm -hmm. little aside with some of the crows. 
And let's be fair, sometimes fan service is just fan service. And sometimes that's all it needs to be because literally we've read six books of this fandom and we love it and we care about it. And like, what else are we here for if not also more fan service along with an actual good book? And if this book was only fan service, then I'd have problems with it, but it was a good book. And then some fan service in there that like well, didn't make logical sense kind of. So like, you know, I was like, all right, I'm down. Love my crows. I also love the fact that like Wylan and Jesper are like living their best, like old married couple lives and like Kaz busts mm -hmm. in every now and then. Hey, let's heist. So they're like, fuck you, Kaz. We've got straight and narrow. <laughs> but also just like the fact that Jesper er, and Kaz have clearly mended their relationship and become BFFs again. I'm just like very here for that. They were adorable in their banter and I just wanted to pitch their little cheeks. Absolutely. Jonathan, what were you trying to say? Well, just I thought it was I thought it was funny when they were trying to figure out why should we do this? It's like, like and Nikolai said for the money, because well, we don't need money. So they know yes. they no longer need money. So money is no longer the the object well, maybe for Kaz, but it's not the object for Wyland or Jesper anymore. I mean, I it's not it's really, yeah. I, I I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I think if it was enough money, it would be yeah. for money for Kaz. But he knows, and we know that Ravka does not have that kind of money. <laughs> However, what Nikolai did have was the way to keep um, an edge safe, uh, an edge safe. safe from from the freaking submarines that they gave. Yeah. To, uh, the, I, I guess they didn't give the submarines to Kat Kirch. They gave them the plans, but yeah. right? They did they because like it seemed no, real freaking. It seemed real freaking quick that Kirch is like, whoa! Like immediately they have you know there they have built these some, submarines. No, there was definitely some timey wimey shit going on in this book. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. there is a lot more time passing between the events of last book and this and between everything that's happening in this story than we actually you know see on paper I, or then I we're even to led to believe at times like i because exactly. to me it felt like it was supposed to pick up almost like not immediately after but within like weeks or so yeah. maybe a month yeah. or two yeah the timeline doesn't work if it wasn't a couple a month or so no, yeah. not in from my the mind, build those like, things, anyway. This book spanned like six months at least, because otherwise there's a lot of, you know, transportation of armies that just does not logistically work. Cough well, Game of Thrones. Well, it depends, it depends on how big yeah, these maybe. countries are. Yeah. I mean, if you're the Middle East, you can get there in two hours. Right? Yeah, so and I... A little bit of yeah, you know? No, it's, it's I, I know very... it's a little bigger, but I mean, that, you know, not every country is Russia. You know, Russia's huge. Well, I don't even think it's supposed to be I Russia and, and China. Was, it doesn't necessarily mean in the world that they're that far apart and that they're yeah, that yeah. big. I just, I made that like fallacy of being like, ah, yes, this is fantasy Russia and fantasy miscellaneous hand wavy East Asian land. So therefore, they must be the same size as real life Russia, <laughs> real life all of East Asia, which is why I'm like, but time. Well, I mean, I, they're definitely based on real life places, but like, I mean, in real life, like it would have taken in with the technology they have, it would have taken a hell of a lot longer to get from Ravka to Kerch because Kerch is definitely based on like Am like like Holland and Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, right, so, and Fjord, I assume, is Sweden. I'm sorry, the Netherlands and Amsterdam. And Fjord, I assume, is Sweden slash Finland, who, who who fought the Russians for years. Mm -hmm. 
which they're and then again like they're they're right up against russia and china is right up against russia but russia is gigantic right but you could shrink russia and therefore they can still be right up against each other and actually be next to each other because in this case isn't fjord next to shuhan on the map it's it's all it's all shrunk down it's it's what it isn't but it doesn't geography doesn't matter I, I, I think that I think the size of the countries doesn't matter and, and, and like how fast they travel from one to another doesn't matter so much as like the period of time it had to have taken the Kirch to put the plans that they received into place for those submarines and to then also have them in the water already destroying these foes and many ships like it, it was very like it's i would like to see like a an official timeline um because like in the in the earlier books it's a lot easier to figure out the timelines but there's definitely a some like you said there's some weird timey-wimey stuff going on here that it's like i don't know um and 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 not even that that lee is necessary that there's something wrong with it but i feel like there needs to be some clarification about how much time actually passed between King of Scars and Rule Wolves, because I did kind of expect them to be like more back to back the way the first trilogy and the Six of Crows duology were, but I don't think they are. So no, I'd like they to. They're not. Like they, they physically cannot be. I assume there was like multiple months. Like I know you guys are saying like a month or two. I was thinking like three or four or five. Well, I think the way the book, the books, the like the way the book is written is that you're supposed to assume it's only been a month or two, but yeah, it's definitely been longer. But uh, okay, so. Meanwhile, other things to talk about. Uh, Zoya has a secret garden, and I'm like literally, literally that whole thing brought me back to the actual secret garden. Like, have any? Have you guys all read that book? Yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah, like, isn't that? Yeah, isn't that a woman's sexuality book? No, no, no. It's like a children's. um, Oh, I I thought there was a. Book of like sex fantasies written in the eighties called My Secret. Oh, Gardens. oh, you're probably not what? wrong. And now I need to look that up. But <laughs> definitely not no, what we're talking about though, John. no, no. The Secret Garden. It's like a it's a children's book. Um, that is like it's about this little girl who goes to live with like a distant family her, member, I believe. I think it's her uncle. After her parents die or something, but like he's a, he lives in this big old like scary house and it's very lonely and bad and then she finds this garden that like has been tended like perfectly like or, or no, it's, it's like overgrown or whatever but it's like it's like prettily overgrown it, this is just it, it was very much reminiscent of that like because yes. the book the girl the little girl makes this like her home her it, it's what makes you know this this scary new home like comfortable for her is this garden and and she meets a little boy in there who turns out to be like her cousin or something and he's like um disabled somehow i I think he's got he had polio or something i I can't remember it's been so long but yeah so this it it just it was very reminiscent of that book but like also it was just the, the idea that zoya like came back from like war and all this awful shit and and she cultivated this garden and and she picked all of these like flowers and plants to remind her of each person she loved that she'd lost it was just so like you know she she's she tries to be so like cold and uncaring in front of everybody but like she does have it she has that love in her and and this is how she you know this this is what she did with it and it's it's just it's very beautiful. It's very it's mm-hmm. very sweet. 
I wish I had that sort of like green thumb, you know? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, yeah. Super broke my heart as well. Like, just because, you know, it, it's very apparent from Zoya's whole story that she's like, that like her journey has been a lot of, you know, coming to terms with forming attachments and with caring about people. And like the fact that she does care so deeply, even when you think she literally could not give a shit about these people, because like, like, because if you think about it, like she's literally mentioning people from the first book and like all the names that she mentions are not people that she ever regards with any sort of like outward respect in her interactions with them. As you saw them, you know, from Alina's point of view, at least. And it's just so heartbreaking to see that, like, you know, like she cares so deeply despite all of that. I just, God, I wanted to cry for her a lot. And I did a lot. I just, I really love Zoya. And I'm glad that while I identify with her a lot, that I also am no longer like that. Because that is a lot of emotional baggage that I do not want to just manage with a garden. And also I cannot garden. So like it would just be not good on many levels. That reminds me, I probably need to water my plant over here. So embarrassingly, I was correct. It was a book of women's sexual fantasies and it was <laughs> written in the seventies. And I'm guessing I found it in my parents' bedroom or something. Oh God, that's scary. <laughs> Oh God! I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> but it's also it is also learned so much today. It is also a very sweet children's novel <laughs> written God knows how long ago, early 1900s, sometime in the 1800s. I I honestly don't know. I read it when I was a little girl. That and A Little Princess were like two of my favorite books growing up. Um, and Black Beauty, but we don't need in Black Stallion, but we don't need to get into horse girl things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, into horse girl things she says <laughs> so so yeah i just i i just wanted to mention that because i just loved that zoya had that and I, I also like i love that i think it's at the end of the book she takes the cuttings of the was it dahlias or something that she had planted for nina and she like she's like wants like nina to have them because she's like ah hey, you're still alive like go make these bloom and fear to girl <laughs> Also, my favorite that, was but... that her whole thing with the dahlias was that they bloom obnoxiously, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, mm -hmm. fucking course they do, there, Nina. And like, also, there's that there's like a whole segment I can't remember exactly where it was, but it really struck me because it's just Zoya being like, yeah, like Nina's not my friend; she's like my student. And meanwhile, Juris in her head is like, you fucking liar. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Juris for just like yeah. making acknowledge her feelings like good shit sometimes it's hard to ignore your feelings when there's a whole literal two other people in there going bitch bitch um so now that we've done the good we've done a good thing let's delve into the not good Ooh. thing and i think like we're just generally gonna hand this over to nami like we we all might have things to say here and there but as uh, yeah, no, white but, people. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, John. But before, before Nami goes on her rant, which is perfectly reasonable, can I just say I completely missed that that was an issue at all? I'll admit it, and maybe that's because I'm a white male of middle age. <laughs> um, I well, to be honest, I um, I read that I read what we're about to talk about uh, <laughs> very late at night. Um. And for me, very late at night nowadays is like 10, 30 or 11. 
and I was like, I was like falling asleep. Like I had to convince myself, like, you can't even pay attention to this book. Go to bed. It was one of the last things I read. So I missed it. And when Nami pointed it out to me and like, I went back and read the passage, I was like, oh Jesus. So yeah, I, I, I miss it. Cause I was exhausted. Well, um, but I, it is I, didn't, I, I didn't miss the fact that she, you know, knew she was Suli and wasn't admitting she was Suli. That. No, I didn't miss that. I missed the white passing thing, and and that's the big that's the big issue here. Like not like being silly and not admitting she is. Like my thought about it was okay. Well, there's there are there are brown people across this world, and we don't know the different like variations right. of their skin color or whatever. But this very specific passage was the problem, and like just Nami, go ahead. Yeah, so I'll actually. <laughs> start by reading the passage itself this yeah. is pretty much the part like after um you know they're doing their crochet and a bunch of uh, a suli um a group of suli have basically made this area around the heist area their home and kaz is like come on zoya what you gonna do so she speaks to them in suli and is like hey y'all it me ya girl zoya <laughs> and and they're like oh hey daughter we see you and that's basically what it is and it's like you know her and after this it's a big moment because she basically tells them about her background and the exact line is well Nikolai goes what did you say how did you know those words and Zoya replies because I'm Suli simple words but she never said them out loud she could feel her mother's hands coming out her hair placing a hat on her head to keep her eyes out of the sun and now this is the part that isn't great you're pale like me you have my eyes you can pass so that, that is the problem because, so first off, I want to just throw a very quick disclaimer out here to say that it could be a knee-jerk reaction to believe that this decision was made by casting Sajaya to be Zoya's actress, but I would also like to clarify one very important thing. Sajaya is light-skinned, but she is right. not white-passing. She is very clearly, obviously, an Indian woman and you would never, or, you know, some sort of South Asian woman and you would not mm -hmm. you know mistake right. her for yeah. white white passing versus a light person of color is very different so the fact but, that her mother explicitly says you can pass is problematic because okay. this removes her from being represented representation for poc to just being just a white person with poc heritage essentially and this is important because while, you know, white passing POC exists, obviously they can see representation for themselves in literally every other white character that has ever existed. And while the story of a white passing POC is important, that's not what we were told Zoya was. Lee specifically commissions art of Zoya with dark skin. This art, this is official art, literally comes with this book. That's a brown woman. That is not a white passing woman. That is a brown woman. So, this art was commissioned by Lee. And like she basically so, misled the whole fandom and baited all POC in this fandom into thinking that Zoya was a brown woman, only to come out two years later and be like, "Well, actually, no, she's white passing." Okay, wait, hold on, Johnny, so, do you have a question? Well, I, I, okay, so I interpreted it differently uh, again, probably because I'm a white middle-aged male. <laughs> yes, it was white passing, mm -hmm. but it wasn't necessarily. I didn't. I didn't. I, I should say I didn't see it as white passing. 
I I saw it as passing as not Sully. And I didn't just that passing in this book in this world. Yeah, yeah. I I think with I think with like in in this in this world, like if you're it's like if your shoe, uh, I, I, yeah. It's it, it's I I think that the way the way that it, I mean it would be it would be the same if it was somebody who's a many I like saying there you'll pass like. I, I, but I, I feel like it's, it's not, it's not even, no, it's not even that because the Suli are universally Romani. just like. It's supposed to be the Romani. Right, exactly. So they're, they're hated for a lot of ridiculous reasons in this world. Um, and, and, and I think that, yes, while, while it is like, oh, your passing is not Suli, it's also like they are a very specific skin color and that's what the problem is it's like you're they're obviously not shoe they're obviously not zemini zemini i'm not sure how to pronounce it so like if they're passing as if someone is passing as not suli then they are passing as they're not going to pass as zemini and they're not going to pass as shoe they're going to pass as a pale skinned you know it, it's not like they're from she, she she's from fierda and she could be because like they they obviously you know the hedge are are um darker skinned as well, but like they like worship them. So right. like you're, you're I, it, it, when you're saying like in I that, think, in this world, when you're saying somebody, when you're saying like you're Suli, but you're passing, you mean that you look, it means in, 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 I mean, and as a white girl, I'm seeing it this way. It sorry, means that they're seeing her as. In Western literature, in literature lit written by white women for YA fantasy, it is assumed white unless corrected otherwise. It is assumed white unless explicitly explicitly corrected multiple times over and over again. And even then, when that explicit correction is made, it is still often ignored. A good example of this is, you know, Avatar The Last yeah. Airbender, Hara, very explicitly like depicted as a dark-skinned brown woman, and she is often, or sorry, a dark-skinned brown girl, because she's like literally 14, but she is always drawn light-skinned and whitewashed. And in a YA place where we don't get rep for dark-skinned people, in quote-unquote fantasy Russia, where everybody is quote-unquote fantasy Russian, saying the one fantasy brown race indigenous to the area has a person who is half of both who passes is saying they pass for white. That's right. All. And I, I guess because I, um, you know, part of it is I think of Russia, fantasy Russia as including the entire ex Soviet union, which had all sorts yes. of people of color in it. So that I, once again, falls into the, again, whole see, the problem like, is trap of what we consider when you grew up. because we are white. Right, and, but and, exactly. And that's not like, what is real. You know, the Turkmen and, 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 and the Chechens, and so I just. But Jonathan, you I, know I, that. I understand a, that you're coming at it from. Person, yeah. You know that as a person of perspective and a person who understands that Russia isn't just you know white monolith Russia, but this <laughs> book isn't targeted to people who know that. This book is targeted <laughs> at young adults my age and younger who have grown up in this country who believe that Russia is all the white pe white blonde ladies who get pregnant and want to come here and have their babies and Republicans are like, heck yeah, let's do it. Like, that's what we think Russia is. And unless you explicitly describe that your fantasy Russia is in fact, you know, um, racially diverse, which Lee did not do, 
the assumption in a world, in a target audience where Russia is all white is that this is all white. And once again, back to the target audience of YA, YA readers assume white unless corrected. And even when corrected explicitly many, many times, literally ever since I got into this fandom, people continued to draw white Zoya even after Lee had announced that she was half Suli. And that's why this is so upsetting because people already want to take away the rep of like the one POC character that we get. And it's clear that, that like, you know, Lee knows how to write POC characters and make sure they're obviously POC. Like she does that with Hana and she does it amazingly because every single scene Hana is described as explicitly POC and, ex and like very beautiful. And like, you know, like Hana has like, like brown skin and it's gorgeous. And like, you know, like it's clear that you can do that if you do the work. And that is why, you know, and I think this is also part of the problem because, you know, when I read this at first, I was initially like, eh, like, I guess maybe she's just light, but you know, that's not what white passing is. That's not what saying you pass is. And unfortunately you really need to dig this down to the root of what these words mean because intentions are great and all, but what Lee has written here, whether she meant to or not was a Zoya who is visibly white and therefore is not POC rep anymore. And that's the part that's like pretty heartbreaking. And God, I have like many, many notes here of like the multiple levels of why this is bad. So like, you know, just on the very basic level of like, why did Lee commission official art of Zoya being brown all these years if she didn't intend for her to be brown? Zoya's story itself did not rely on her being white passing to make it make sense. And it could have been managed without that. And her being, you know, visibly POC, like light or medium brown tone, but explicitly confirming her Suli heritage was still a journey that could have made sense. And, you know, her story with colorism still rang true with me a lot. And, you know, I'm not white passing. I am very obviously brown, but like colorism is still a struggle that like light passing brown people deal with a lot. So like, it also makes the whole point of like Kaz recognizing her Suli heritage makes sense versus just being like Kaz pulling it out of his ass. And like, it just also makes no sense that she's white passing and every Suli person she meets is immediately like our daughter, like we got you girl. Like if she's white passing, that's not how that would work. And I think a lot of this is, you know, a level of language problem, a level of Lee not realizing that this was this bad, a level of Lee being like, oh, Ravka is fantasy Russia and Russia and his allying lands are diverse. You know, I am very willing to give Lee the benefit of the doubt in all of this because full disclosure on first read i read this through and i was like yeah okay i guess whatever and i kind of brushed past this and like the more i thought about it the more upset i became by it because the more i realized what was being taken away from fans of color by making her white versus poc explicitly was and i think that's why you know this like oh my parents just closed my door because i'm being loud but i think this is why <laughs> this is such a trip up you know because Literally, Jonathan, you just demonstrated how it's so easy to not realize that this is a problem. Yeah. And like, you know, as somebody like who, like, like I, like, it's so easy to not see this as a problem. And it speaks to a bigger problem within like the publishing industry as a whole that is dominated by white writers in this Western yeah. audience that, you know, very much would look at something like this and not see that it is a problem and not seeing that fans would be upset by it. And it's, not like you can't even really blame Lee for this because truly if this book has gone through so many edits and so many eyes as it must have in order to reach this point and nobody thought that this was enough of an issue to bring it up and speak to her about it because I would like to think that Lee who has shown growth in the past would 
if she was told that this was this problematic, that she wouldn't do it. And the fact that it clearly wasn't brought up and explained in a way to truly understand the impact of why it's a bad decision, it really speaks to the problem and the uninclusivity, uninclusivity of the publishing industry as a whole, because it's white authors editing white authors and making content for white readers. And that is a problem. And you see it a lot in so many other, you know, authors of color talking about, you know, how they have difficulties getting their books published, getting good editors for it. Sometimes, you know, books that have a lot of cultural draws from other non-white cultures have a lot of difficulty getting that, like, you know, content approved because other white readers will read it and be like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this? You know, and it's like, Obviously, I don't know a lot about the publishing industry and I like exist on the edges of book Twitter and booktube and book bookstagram. But like, you know, <laughs> stuff like this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Stuff like this happens because people who are supposed to be reading this stuff and making sure it doesn't make these mistakes are not able to see these mistakes. And maybe they don't care to. And that's also part of the problem, you know. But like yeah. the reason I'm bringing this up and the reason not only am I bringing it up, but I'm being so adamantly upset about it is that I love this series as you guys can probably obviously tell. Like I care about mm -hmm. the series a lot and I care about Zoya a lot because, you know, I started reading this series after King of Scars came out. So as a whole, I started reading when the Netflix show was announced. So at this point, Zoya was already confirmed as half Suli by Lee. So I read this book. And I immediately was able to identify with Zoya because not only is she half Suli, but she also literally has all the other aspects of me that I can see in other characters, but had never seen in a character that also could look like me, you know? So letting POC fans think for two years that Zoya was visibly brown and then taking that away is, an, is inherently problematic. And, you know, I think this is... <laughs> I understand so much how betrayed the Fat Nina fans feel now because like I, I get it. I really, really get it. And while Lee's explanation for Fat for Nina being the size that she is makes a lot of sense and is really personal to Lee and all of that, there isn't an explanation for white passing Zoya that would make sense, that would be acceptable and fair. Because the sad truth of the matter is that her story could have been exactly the same. Her journey could have been exactly the same and she could have been described as beautiful and brown this whole time as Hannah was described. And her journey would have still been exactly the same as explicitly acknowledging her Suli culture when the Suli are not loved in Ravka versus just melding in and being a miscellaneous brown person in Ravka. And that journey would still have been there and still have been important. And the problem is that we literally for years had the impact of having the most beautiful woman in the Grishaverse, which is because that's what Zoya has been described as be a brown right. woman. And by making her be white passing, you're accidentally jumping back into those colorism traps that you're trying to point out in this book, because, you know, the world loves to praise people who look light or who look white or have white features. And, you know, you're once again, back to, praising another white woman for being the most beautiful when it could have been a brown woman who was the most beautiful. Like it was so, it was right there. It was at the cusp of being great. And this just pulled it down. And not only that, but like you had the, the, the white, what was previously just, you know, an angry bitchy white woman who was, you know, the romantic leads enemy was now, you know, 
also an angry bitchy brown woman who now has her own story and becomes her own main character a pov brown character in this book which is important you know a pov character of color is always great for rep and the other thing is that the pov character of color is irascible not friendly literally described as a thornwood but is still beloved enough by her country to be chosen as queen and is then allowed to be angry and upset at things visibly when women of color so often aren't allowed to be angry like that in this country so it's just it's multiple levels of hurt because it was really really good it was really really good and if it had stayed brown visibly brown zoya visibly brown zoya would have been the best brown rep that south asian girls would have had for a long time visible brown zoya would have been like the rep that people would think about in pop culture for a very long time and i think with the show with the casting of sujaya there still is that but the fact that she was now written as white passing in a universe and in a publishing world where that can easily be heard as she just looks white it can now be used as an excuse to once again draw white Zoya art, to once again make white Zoya content, to once again bully cosplayers of color for cosplaying Zoya because oh she's white in the she's white in the books. Like why do you even dress as her? Like she had so much potential to be really, really amazing and really, really good. And it's really heartbreaking that Lee stepped in it this hard. And, you know, like I said, this is, God, okay, you know what, I'm just going to do an in summary, because that was a lot. So uh, TLDR, white passing Zoya <laughs> is bad, because one, absolutely baiting fans of color. You cannot say that a character is brown and make canonic brown art of them for years and cast a brown actress as that character and then make her white in the book. Two, her character arc and her journey in the book did not need this to make sense, so it is not excused for a plot point. Three, back to the official art, she's literally brown in the art, so why is she brown in the art but white passing in book canon? Unless Lee does not know what white passing means, in which case she should not have used those words. Four, once again, you're falling into traps of colorism standards and stereotypes where white and light-skinned women are being praised for their beauty while dark women are not, which you could have beaten with Brown Zoya. Five, Western audiences assume white unless told otherwise, especially when they're YA audiences of white kids raised in white countries in this town. Wow, in this white kid raised in white towns in this country, words. And so once again, this will give people excuses to portray Zoya as white, which is no longer rap. Six, it unfortunately very much reads as inclusivity points without actually being inclusive because the rep for POC needs to be loud and explicit and clear and repeated in Western media because otherwise people will just ignore it because people suck sometimes. And, you know, on the topic of baited, the reason it extra sucks is because Lee kind of, kind of is accidentally half Dumbledoring Zoya. Because, you know, the reason the Dumbledore is gay sucked is because Dumbledore was never gay in actual media, just in JKR's words. And then, you know, you have Fantastic Beasts where Dumbledore could be explicitly gay, but he isn't. And now, you know, you have this last book in the, in the series of Grishaverse where Zoya could be explicitly brown, 
but instead she's white passing. And while, you know, Lee does do it half right by, you know, casting Sajaya at the same time, Sajaya is, is like very light. So I worry that she's going to get backlash on it. And people are going to be like, you're white passing and did you read it? Like, did you use white passing? Like, which is absolute bullshit because once again, Sajaya's not, but like people say mean things when they get hurt. So makes sense. And, you know, if you are also a fan of color, of this series and you were feeling betrayed and hurt by this, I would encourage you to read books by, you know, other brown authors for some brown joy because, you know, while obviously they aren't perfect and they're definitely not this popular, they definitely do give you that joy of being seen. And I've been doing that more because it does help. And basically in conclusion, like Lee do better, you know, we have actively seen your growth. And like we always say in here, we, I love, we love growth in this house. And I truly, truly believe that you didn't mean to hurt your fans like this and that you didn't, know how bad this was like literally Jonathan just showed right here how you can be you know an educated kind oblivious <laughs> educated but oblivious you know <laughs> we know things based off of our life experiences and unfortunately the fact of the matter is that if you are white you will not know things unless you actively seek them out or you stick your foot in your mouth like this and all I can hope is that Lee continues to grow and will grow from this like she has shown us in the past. And I hope that, you know, she will continue to commission Brown Zoya art and come out and say, hey, I use I use the word passing slash this didn't mean what you guys are interpreting it to mean. Zoya is actually brown. You know, something like that would be nice because I truly believe that she would not have done this if she knew the true implications of what it meant. And you know, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. The reasons I'm being so like angry about this is because I love the Grishaverse and I love Lee and I love how she, you know, she took other criti criticisms that fans of color had, like, you know, exploring more of what's happening in Shu Han instead of just letting it be, you know, miscellaneous East Asian country. Like she did that. She did. We got more of Shu Han. We got literally, like we learned about it's absurd politics of the Tabans. Like, can we talk about, can we get a whole bunch of concubines? Like, nice. Give me that. Give me some of that. But like, you know, like you can see from her writing and that she is trying and you can see even here that she tried and that, you know, she wants to grow, and I truly do believe that. And unless Lee comes out and says, fuck brown people or something like that, where she comes out and she's like, you know, I thought I think white passing away is still a good idea and I'm going to keep it. I see no reason to hate on her or anything. I, but yeah, I want to believe you can't be disappointed. And I am. I'm I want to believe that this was like a badly written and bad and not properly edited passage. Yeah. Yeah, I really do want to believe that. And you know, even if but it was until we hear that from the author's lips, it is what it is. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like <sighs> I really do believe in growth. And one of the very important things to remember when you are on a journey of growing yourself is that no matter how much you grow and no matter how much you do good, it is always possible to hurt people unintentionally. And unfortunately, intentions do but don't matter in the sense that if your intentions are good and you hurt somebody, as long as you apologize, you can still continue to be a good person around it. But if your intentions are good and you hurt somebody, but you don't make amends for it, it doesn't matter if your intentions were good, you know? And that's what I truly believe. Well, I, not just amends, but the, you know, like, like the, the, the attempt to, you know, move forward and grow and change. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like saying, saying you're sorry is one thing, but it's almost... It, 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 it's it's almost pointless if you're not actually going to 
also try to, you know, learn from the experience and, and, and be a better person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I firmly do believe in Lee. I love her a lot. I love her books a lot. You know, I think she is doing the work, which is why seeing this made me sad and it made me angry and it made me hurt and it made me feel betrayed. But I still, despite all of that, I still did love this book. I still do love the Grishaverse and I still believe that Lee has a good heart and a good head on her shoulders. And that I think when she's made aware of how not good this decision is, that she will hopefully come out and address it. That's all I can hope for. And yeah, in the meantime, um, if you're also upset by me, please uh, join me in screaming on Twitter about it because <laughs> I've been doing that a lot. Don't look at my recent tweet retweets. It's a lot of uh, gay shit from the Untamed and then white passing stories. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a lovely combination. I mean, listen, I was on a Walking Dead webcast two days ago, so nobody needs to look at like my <laughs> recent tweet history. There, there was this moment where every time there's like an option to put my Twitter down in some sort of like connection to my cosplay and like my other, like, you know, technically semi-professional things, I'd always like, put your Twitter down. If they look through your likes, they will literally find porn. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> it's not great. That's on them though. But my dad True. follows my Twitter and it is my biggest hope that he does not actually know how to use it. <laughs> <He does. laughs> I think my dad follows my Twitter too, but that's another story for another time. Okay, so any now is there anything else you wanted to say before we move on to something that's positive about what happened at the end of this book? Ooh. Oh, well, I have a lot of other stuff to say in general, but just about the book in general, but that's a separate in Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. I mean about this specific subject because yeah, you know do you ever like vibrate about a topic so hard that you need to use your words about it? And then you use your bird words about it. And you're still vibrating. So you're like, Oh, I have more. <laughs> and that's just me right now. Cause that's I've been like, I'm literally pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure that's why a lot of people hate me. So <laughs> yeah, I, um, <laughs> I've just been screaming about this online for a bit because like originally, like, you know, my reaction was like very similar to Jonathan. And then I was like, yeah, sure. I guess this makes sense for her story. Like, okay, cool. And then my friend was like, no, like you see why this is shit, right? And I was like, oh my god, oh god, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And oh my poor bangs, they're doing their best. And but yeah, uh, I've been basically <laughs> in a void. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it for like five days now. How long's it been? I don't know. Time is imaginary. Um, at least five. Yeah, it's 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 been a few because like I I remember like I I messaged Nick and I was like, yo, Nami and I just had this long conversation. I, I didn't message Jonathan because I knew mm -hmm. Jonathan wasn't as far along in the book as as the rest of us were for a while. Yeah, I didn't finish I like, it Nick, till last night. Actually, so. you need to tell me how you need to tell me you're done. But also, there were so many other things that I wanted to talk to everybody about, and this next thing is one of them. Um, so okay. Moving on to an entirely different subject. And this is something that I think was, I, I mean, now, you know, I, I I might not be the best person to, to talk about this, but I think it was handled really well. So, like, as somebody who um, generally identifies as non-binary more often than I don't, um, uh, there was that, like, 
oh, okay, Hannah is non-binary moment uh, when she was talking, when Hannah was talking about how she felt more comfortable just kind of in like, you know, the generic clothing and stuff like that. Like I, it, not necessarily like she, she, she didn't, it, it, gosh, I don't even know. It's, it's, I don't even know like the best way to like refer to this. It's hard. It was, it was a lot of feeling more comfortable in typically masculine clothing yes. and typically masculine hairstyles and forms and being disguised as in a typically masculine way. Yeah. And I, I think like, a, I, I think from what we saw in King of Scars, I was just kind of generally leaning toward, okay, well, she's, Hannah is non-binary, but then, you know, there's that moment where Hannah has tailored herself to be Rosmus, you know what I mean? And is in this male body and, um, you know, is just so like, I'm comfortable now. Like this is what I was meant to be. And um, like, I just, there's just so much, there's just so much that I loved she, about all of this. <laughs> she had actually said it earlier in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or maybe she it was even, a, it may have even been in the last book, but she didn't feel right. like she should, she should be a woman basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how and I interpreted it, you know, way back in earlier. In the I, I think that I was just kind of looking for, and then the, honestly, that might've been me like looking for that, like non-binary representation, you know, like where I, I saw for, for a bit and obviously like later in the book, no, not, I, I, I got it. But like, at first I, I was kind of seeing it like as like a non-binary thing. And I was like, okay, well, this is like how, like how Hannah is and then it's just very like it it, it turned even before she be tailors herself to look like Rosmus it's I mean she's still kind of like talking about growing out her hair and and it, Hannah is still talking about growing out their hair and stuff but whatever eventually eventually Hannah is Rosmus and is you know I, I don't even know if I want it's like I, I don't want to refer to him as Rosmus because ew Rosmus, but like, yeah. I think until Hana officially chooses yeah. a new name within the fandom, it is valid to continue to refer to him or them as Hana. And I think you know, until Hana explicitly has pronouns, we can continue to use any pronouns for Hana, unless, of course, you know, while while still I would, I, yeah, I, I would say maybe not feminine. Knowledge, very, very obviously that Hana is trans, definitely trans non-binary or trans mask so yeah. and, and, and more logically comfortable using you know neutral or male pronouns for them but also that is you know once again gender is such a spectrum for so many people and you know choosing your pronouns is a very personal thing and maybe hana just hates all real pronouns and wants to be addressed as prince all the time and prince is a pronoun now i don't know man do what you want hana Give your joy. Man, I, I want say, Prince to be a pronoun. I know, right? would be great, wouldn't it? I will say the moment, though, of, like, Hannah in, like, tailored as Rosmos having their moment of gender euphoria is, like, mm -hmm. so very, very poignant and good. Because it's one of those things that, like, even if you, like, like, I am very much 
I am high femme on pretty much everything. It me, girl. <laughs> so like, you know, it's not something that I would ever personally understand, but like, you know, like being in the character's head or like being near that character while they are experiencing this emotion and understanding this aspect of them, it was just very poignant and very, very well written. And, you know, I haven't actually talked to any trans fans about this. I am actually waiting for one of my, um, uh, a couple of my non-binary friends who are who use they them he he him pronouns to finish this because i'm very interested in how they see this journey and what they think about it and how they think it was written because you know as a cis person i think it was written great but also like you know as a cis person i think it was written great and i probably missed a whole bunch of shit but loved it mm -hmm. glad rasmus is dead glad hana is the prince now a plus big fan can we talk about like confirmed bisexual pansexual nina though and like just i i there feel are like that that was clear earlier in the books too though well no so, so we it was always obvious that nina was not straight that that was never a question but there's a difference uh, to me as somebody who identifies as pansexual there is a difference between being pansexual and bisexual now i as like i what I see it as is somebody can identify as bisexual, but they th that is that they like two different, you know, uh, gender or gender identities. Like they like men and they like women, or they like women and they like, um, you know, like, like non binary people. Like it's bi to me, it's two. It's very like, like it, it doesn't matter which two you like but you like two things um and 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 i could be wrong there because i don't identify as bisexual but like yeah so i will personally say i do identify as bisexual but the more modern and more used definition of bisexual is that bisexual and pansexual are effectively interchangeable um not actually interchangeable people pick the words based off of what they understand and what they see i called myself bisexual first which is why i will continue to do that even though you know in terms of the strict definition of things i would identify more as pansexual which is attraction to all genders or all people regardless of gender so i think that that's one thing but nina was always written as not straight and it is one thing to be not straight but it is another thing to be not straight into a woman and then continue to support your partner through a struggle about gender and mm -hmm. a transition. Mm -hmm. Because as much as the, you know, the gay community and the LGBTQ community likes to think that they're super woke, you know, people still suck everywhere. And like, you know, a lot of problems for people with being non-binary or being trans is that even if your partner is bisexual or pansexual, sometimes like, you know, supporting somebody through a change like that and continuing to love them is a lot. And you know, no judgment if you are no longer attracted to a person because their gender expression changes to a gender that you are not attracted to. That is, you know, that's also fine. You're not required to be attracted to anybody. But the fact that Nina is a character that is pansexual in that way and like continues to be supportive and supports her partner through everything, it was just, really positive and good and sweet and wholesome and good and god like i don't know who i i know some people who don't like nina because you know just she can be a lot and i get it but i think that even people who don't like nina can acknowledge that she was a good partner at this moment to hana and like literally like like 
they basically they they literally sleep together and then hana like comes out and explicitly has this transition and nina's still like yeah here for it mm-hmm. and like well yeah i mean hana hana asks like you can love me in this body and nina says it's your heart i love like it's yeah. it's like you as a person in general it doesn't matter to her it doesn't matter to nina what you know hana looks like like she 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 thought hana was beautiful as she thought hana was beautiful as they were, but you know, I, I mean, I don't think she necessarily finds like Rodmus super attractive. But at the same time, she sees, she still sees Hana in Rosmus, like physically as well as as you know, mentally Rosmus and emotionally. So. Electric <laughs> <laughs> I do yeah, want to echo what Nami said that uh, the. The commonly used definition of bisexuality, and certainly the one that I adhere to, is that it is two or more genders. It is not explicitly two. And so in most cases, bisexuality and pansexuality are effectively synonymous because pansexuality is all genders. Bisexuality is two or more. Two or more can be all. so it is also, to Nami's point, what the individual person chooses to identify as. Uh, but I think that bisexuality is actually a very open and fluid uh, identity. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, was it Nami? Did you write this? Some Someone online mentioned it was weird to have oh, a yes. huge okay. so that was me. white. Yeah. I, can, I can touch on that a bit. So somebody was mentioning that they did not like the Hana journey and how they felt it was once again whitewashing because they were making the POC character end up in a white man's body at the end. And I was like, okay, so couple of things to unpack here. First of all, the character didn't end up in a white man's body, quote. The character, first of all, became a man because that is who the character always was. And that is the body that the character feels comfortable in. First off, we're not talking about the trans journey here. Secondly, the character disguising themselves as a white person was never being like, hey, I'm no longer brown. Like you, Hana still is Hedget. Hana still has that experience and that story. And, you know, Hana still has that rep- representation in the book because, like I said, for the majority of the book, Lee is like, Hana is beautiful and brown. Hana is beautiful and brown. Hana is beautiful and brown. Mm-hmm. And let me say, Odds are that if Lee wasn't so adamantly, Hana is beautiful and brown. I might have felt a little bit different about this, but Hana is beautiful and brown is pretty much like the echoing one thought, one brain cell going on in Nina's POV <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> right? Like girl hyper focuses on her love interests. We'll give her, we'll give Nina that credit. But like, you know, that is like the one thing that is like, you know, very much part of Hana's identity. And that's not going away because Hana is in disguise now. Hana is admittedly disguised as a white prince. Hana is not disguised as a man. Hana is a man. That is the body that Hana feels comfortable in. And like that journey is there. Secondly, I don't actually think this is a happy ending for them yet. Because think about it. Like Nina is also still not in Nina's body. Again, Nina is still Mila. Like Nina is literally stuck as being like this like uppity, like demure Fjordan woman. Slightly thick, slightly thick white haired. (laughs) Like literally like this. 
to me never read as a happy ending. This to me read as a continuation of their mission, just in a position to actually have change occur. They are, you know, still spies deep undercover completing their mission. This is not the ending of their story. This isn't their happy ending yet. One day, I hope they will get their happy ending. I suspect that one day maybe, you know, they'll find a way to have a biological child that can inherit the throne and, you know, then they can go quietly retire when their child is old enough to take over. I don't know. Maybe, you know, they keep the throne and they raise Rasmus's real younger brother until he's old enough and compassionate enough to take over the throne and have the same views that Hannah and Nina will be, you know, trying to spread to the Fearden people. Yeah, at this hopefully this imparting. Never, exactly. This was never read to me as a happy ending. It was never read to me that like, you know, Hannah's a white man now. Like it's, Hannah is trans and has discovered that Hannah has experienced gender euphoria and understands what they want for themselves after all of this but they need to finish their mission. And once they finish this mission, Hana can go back to, you know, looking like their biological self, but in the form that they prefer of, you know, limbs and fleshy bits. That's all that gender is, right? <laughs> limbs and fleshy yeah. bits. But yeah, no, so like, you know, to me, I understand why people could have seen it that way, but you know, if you if if that's the perspective you're going with, you're really thinking this is the end. The story's over. Nothing else happens ever. Han is stuck as Prince Rasmus for the rest of their lives. Not true. I would like to think they succeeded their mission and oh. go to retire happily. Retire and Nina gets to be a brunette <laughs> again and can eat her weight in waffles and then eat more waffles and then eat more waffles and live waffle joy and then let Hannah have waffles <laughs> and everybody has waffles. But yeah. I wanted to address that because, you know, some people were saying it and I'm sure if some people were saying it that a lot of people were thinking it and yeah, hey, your identity isn't hidden if you're in disguise. Like, you know, for example, I, once again, I'm going to go back to like, I don't know if this is a real thing, but I'm sure that like undercover spies in wars between white nations will go undercover into different white nations and be like, hello, you don't know who I am. <laughs> but they haven't magically changed their heritage and they're like, they're, they're like, personhood because of that and like the same thing goes like you know if you're brown like Hannah still Hannah Hannah still Hedget I think my favorite moment though this is kind of unrelated but also related to Fjorda my uh, my favorite moment was like the Fjordan ideal that like the native Hedget people are sacred I was like I was like fuck yeah like finally just just let me experience the joy of like a country valuing its native people and thinking they're wonderful instead of trying to murder them with like smallpox blankets like we did like <laughs> heck yeah I'm here for that and like there was just the moment where like Nina looks at like the green like the like Fjordan royal family and it's like they're all blonde haired and blue eyed and they claim Hedget blood because it's sacred and I was like right they do well fucking done boys <laughs> like i had to put the book down and like laugh a little bit at that i was very amused <laughs> was that even a coherent thought i don't know i got there can, eventually can I, can I vent about a plot point for a second sure you know, sure obviously hana is the most talented uh naturally talented grisha ever because she has yeah. like no training whatsoever and yet was able to tailor better than anyone well, we do get both in King of Scars and in Rule of Worlds confirmation that Nina spends a lot of time 
training Honda. Like, not to well, the not if it's only a couple of months. You would have gotten well, but but in in King of Scars, months pass. So it's not like it's I just what happens between those two books. We get months of Nina training Hana in King of Scars. Now it's not the same level that she might have gotten at the Little Palace or anything like that. And yes, probably natural degree of talent. But I don't give a shit. Like. Hana did train. Hana may be naturally good. Doesn't matter. Uh, to me, it's not a necessarily any kind of an issue with the plot. Well, and I think it's it's not necessarily. Um, I, I mean, in in the original trilogy, like we are uh, led to believe that Genya was just so naturally talented at being a tailor. Like, of course she had training, but we're led to believe that she was so naturally talented as she was the, she is the best tailor. So, so the, the, the fact that Hana, you know, has some of that, has talent sort of in, you know, maybe not quite that much talent, but in that vein. Um, and, and also she mentions that not only has, not only do we know that Nina has been training her, but Hannah mentions that she's been practicing. And let's be clear, she has very specifically been practicing tailoring herself to look like a man. Yep. When 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 she is still she Hannah, she has you know you don't you don't it doesn't it doesn't read like that necessarily when she first when Hannah first talks about it, but when. Um, when Hannah, like, like it, it becomes very, very clear in the end that like they were practicing, you know, growing their hair and stuff, but like they were definitely practicing tailoring themselves to look the way they wanted to look in this, which in this case was like a man, not obviously necessarily like Rasmus specifically, but, but yeah, I, I think that we have to believe that when Hannah mentions that they, you know, spent that time practicing. It was it they were they were practicing to be the person they were. Which... And I think for, another thing to keep in mind is that you know, imagine any trans person in this world being handed that ability and knowing that that is in the scope of something that they could do. They would practice their ass off. Doesn't matter mm -hmm. how much. Fair they enough. They would they would work until they got it. So like, while I understand the it seemed really fast for her to for Hana to get it like oh yeah it was definitely fast but I also think the fast makes sense in the sense that like if you had the opportunity to give yourself that exact body that you wanted and you needed it on the level that a trans person struggling with dysphoria would need which Hana clearly is you would fucking work yeah. for, for it Hana, Hana was studying for the MCATs getting this done um, sorry, I just I blocked the way I said done right no, there. No, I love it. I'm fine. I love it. So, okay. So, last but not least, in terms of like the last couple things we wanted to discuss, um, I'm Nami. This might have been you or yeah, somebody. Somebody was talking about the impact of of Inej actually going to Ravka. Yeah. Uh, so this I just I just love that we actually got to see Inej too. You know, just like yeah. you know, I like, had. Just a very happy moment where like my two best girls were meeting and I was just very, very glad and just like very happy that like, you know, 
you know, first of all, that Zoya, like, had, like, Inej had clearly gotten, like, good at her shit enough <sighs> as, the, as, like, the captain of her ship that Zoya, like, knew who she was. And also that, like, you know, Nikolai's, like, whole thing was like, hey, maybe I'll just become a retire and be a pirate and go do piratey things with Inej. We'll just be pirates. And I was like, I was like, Heck, yeah. <laughs> like, they literally know how good she's doing. And, like, that's amazing. And, like, I think I had talked about this in our Crooked Kingdom conversation, but like Enid had like specifically criticized Ravka like to Nina when Nina had asked her to go and talk to, you know, uh, Stromhan and Genya and Zoya and Enid specifically was like, no, I can't. Like Ravka has been terrible to the Suli. Like I cannot do that. And I think this is just, you know, a promise of a good, a, a promise of a bigger impact of Robko becoming better and like mm-hmm. there are kind of hints of it throughout this book of like you know Nikolai doing his best to make Robko better and like more accepting generally and like you know it just it made me very happy to see those little things put in there because like it wasn't I didn't really see it in the previous books because Robka is very much, you know, a problematic imperialistic country. But I feel like, you know, it was made very obvious in this book that Nikolai is like very much like aware of that. As, like, oh, I mean, I'll be honest, like before the drag, the, the Sancta Zoya dragon queen thing, I, I kind of had it in my head that it was going to end with Nikolai being like, okay, well, I have to marry to make an alliance. So why don't I marry a Suli? you know, like, That's like, and, and we, like, like we've always been, they, they, they've been entertaining, like the Shuhan, the Kirch, the, uh, the Fjordans even to a slight extent, maybe, I don't know. Like, but like in the end I was like, okay, so like, but Zoya is Suli. So if Nikolai stays king, he can marry Suli, like marry her as a Suli. And like, that's, that's a different alliance because they are, they are everywhere. And they, they, you know, it's like nobody, nobody, like the, the, the people don't want to believe they're important, but they really are. I mean, as is evidenced by the fact that they guard that whole, like, you know, that whole, like, creepy island near Kerch and everything. (laughs) It's explicitly mentioned multiple times in the series as well that the Suli are the native inhabitants of Ravka and that some sort of colonizing has occurred and Ravka no longer belongs to the Suli and the Suli were kicked out by colonizers. So it was very much like, I thought that was the route they were going to take. The other thing with entertaining the Fjordans, which I really like liked was the insight that Nikolai's mom that the queen was actually a Fjordan like princess yeah, or, like, I almost forgot about that and that she was basically you know given to the king of Ravka for a marriage that everybody knew that like Fjorda was not going to honor a treaty for and I just that was so so sad and it makes her whole backstory with like you know Nikolai's father make a whole lot more sense and also who's a sense- good dude because Nikolai's yeah. like fake dad is awful but like a, you know good for her good for her yeah. like she you know listen she she's problematic as well but like good for her for like getting that maybe short moment of happiness with like Magnus because I I think it seemed he cared about her too if he didn't yeah. and he certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't have like tried to keep this whole thing a secret all this time and also refused, refused to speak out against Nikolai. And also uh, well, he, he, said, never- he said specifically, I would never hurt your mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was really sweet. And I think the most hilarious thing out of all of that was that Nikolai, the Robkin Prince is literally all feared in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you're right. Oh my God. Oh, that's a good it's, point. You would think yes. Fiorita would like him more. I know, right? Right. And oh, okay, so I had one more thing that I wanted to talk about. So I saw a lot of discourse on Twitter about, you know, Genya partially forgiving the Darkling and how that was utter bullshit. And I want to say, I think it was great. I think it was truly mm -hmm. amazing. Because Genya specifically forgives the Darkling for one and only one thing. She forgives him for giving her his scar, her forgiving her her scars. And yep. one thing to recall, Genya got those scars because she chose to betray the Darkling to Alina. And she's not dumb. She knew there would be some sort of, you know, punishment, retaliation for that. She very willingly went into that situation. She knew what was going to happen. She forgave the dark. She forgave the Darkling for the one and only thing that she could control. However, she yeah. didn't forgive him for anything else, and she verbally reams him for it. And like, granted, he doesn't give a flying fuck, but who cares about him? This isn't about him. This is about Genya and her journey to accepting that she wasn't responsible for the abuse that her father figure allowed to happen to her as a child and as a young woman and as a young adult who was not ready to navigate this world and who put her trust in this man. And that is such a good and important journey. And like, she has like a very poignant part where like, I can't remember exactly what it is she wrote, but she was like, it was a, what she said, but it was something along the lines of like, nobody will know, like when people think about the things that the Darkling did, they will think about like, Nova Kirbisk or like, you know, killing the, like the Grisha who died in his hands, mm -hmm. they're not going to think about Genya's suffering. And for a long time, she thought it was her own personal shame to bear. And that wasn't the case. It was the fault of the person who put her in that situation. It was the fault of the person who abused her because she was vulnerable. And that was such an important journey for her. And I think the fact that she, like, not only does she make that journey and not forgive him, for her hurt when she was vulnerable, but the fact that she also forgives him for the thing that she controlled and, you know, technically did bring upon herself because, you know, actions do have consequences, even if the person dealing out those consequences is a terrible, violent, evil human being. Like, you know, it was, it was just incredibly good and insightful. And God, the fact that she literally can stand in that man's face and say, fuck you one more time, just so good. Genya, my queen. Let's be fair. Zoya is my favorite, but Genya is just the goodest. Um, so in conclusion, I, I think it was Jonathan who added these thoughts to the doc. Uh, and I like this idea of like, at the end of it all, who are the winners, the losers, and the, eh, you know, um, <laughs> winners and this is this is this is actually just a different reference um fans who wanted a dragon queen at the song at the end of song of ice and fire now granted we don't know how song of ice and fire ends we only know how game of thrones ends <laughs> but yes yes Win winners who wanted winners who wanted a zoya queen yeah. or just a dragon queen in general for sure um zoya lies shippers uh obviously uh, and honestly like really they're so cute Who cares? <laughs> so cute um and and nikolai himself not just because he lands zoya but yeah. uh like john I, I mean jonathan it, I, he escapes this life that he doesn't actually want right right he didn't want to be monarch he right. wanted to be he able to roam the roam the seas and have adventures and or at science. the very least or at the very least, not be stuck 
spending all of his time leading when he could be doing more important, really more important things in general, but also to him. Um, all I can picture, uh, who, who's, who here has watched like the new Netflix Shira? Because all I can picture is yes. Nicolas. All I can yes. picture is Nicolas Seahawk on a boat screaming, Adventure! Yes. <laughs> Adventure! <laughs> I have to watch it. I've heard good things. Oh, it's, it's, so, it's so good. good. It's so good. So good. And yes, yes, I... I yes, I pictured I've pictured that too, especially when he was talking in this book about how he just wanted to wear his turquoise coat. Yes. Oh, oh lovely. Um now this Jonathan, what is the oh, this reference? I don't know if I get the 2002 so, film. So yeah, so as Zoya was knocking out the Fjordan Air 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 Force, um, I immediately thought back to the 2002 film Reign of Fire, which is the first time I saw dragons take out uh, supersonic jets. So it just got me to remember a movie I hadn't thought about in 18 years. Uh, so <laughs> I, I honestly don't think I've ever seen that. It's actually really good. It, it was a complete bomb and it has Matthew McConaughey and it never seems to make it on cable. But I remember loving the movie, but at the time. It also uh, takes place in 2020, and so I was convinced for a while. Oh, that's a good point. I by the end of 2020, that. we were going to have dragons occur since everything else went wrong. Well, uh, I mean, to be honest, that does kind of lead us into the Temerary series a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Um, okay, so losers. Uh... <laughs> Those of us like me who were hoping to see Nina raise an army of zombies to destroy Winterfell, i.e. the Ice Court. Um, I was so I thought oh, that was happening like, at some point in this. She was going to raise a huge army of zombies and and get revenge, and it never happened. We actually don't see been, much of uh, her powers at all. That is interesting. And then except the except other one. Is, to, I'm back. Sorry. To, like, I got kicked for a second. I don't know what happened. Okay, so yeah, you thought you thought Nina was raising an, an army of zombies. I thought that too a couple times. Go ahead, Dami. You were saying something. Well, the only time she uses her power in this book is when she straight up tries to use her secret bones to stab Joran, and I was very amused by that. Oh no, that's not true. She 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 um she connects with the queen the the oh, queen's the former like hand friend or handmaiden or whatever the f we're supposed to be right no she used her power to to commune with the dead yeah yeah she didn't use it to raise them and yeah no i agree that was kind of disappointing <laughs> although i do like her like spirit medium powers now like those are pretty fun in a different way like i never yeah. thought that that was where her powers would go fully, but the fact that that's where they went instead of like, I carry bones all the time now, even though that is partially where it went. I was happy with the, Nina is not a corpse lady now. So, so I actually think the biggest loser is Yuri. He was not loved, but did he deserve to be tortured for eternity with the Darkling since they're now one and the same? Oof, yeah, I don't true. know. It's hard to say. It's like, does he even know what's going on? Like, is he totally I thought gone so. now? It seemed like he did. Poor you. I, yeah, I thought he did too. That's how I, I mean, he was it. bad, but was he that bad? Oh, I don't know. Richard Spencer? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, don't I would pay to see Richard Spencer tormented for the rest of the um, I don't agree anymore that Yuri is Richard Spencer, but I do think that by the time the Darkling was in his head, that like he was in the Darkling's head too, and therefore he knew what was happening. But also every time the Darkling went to try to do something truly like just letting people die again, Yuri was like, what? No! 
no! Well, that's that pissed me off even more because I was like, you should have known, you stupid motherfucker. Like, this is what you brought. Yeah, no, he's not, he's not intelligent. We, he's not intelligent. Or maybe, or maybe he, he he is evolving and didn't realize that you know he thought of the Darkling as this protector of Ravka, and and which again you know, he was if you he was he was misled and he was misled by his right. own history, which right. is and which then you is, see the real the real the reality is not the same yeah. as the yeah, your yeah ideals, I mean it was magical. Right? If, if I don't. I don't it, think Yuri agree, like like deserves to be tortured for eternity. I'll I'll say that. No. Yeah, sure. I will say that Yuri definitely biggest loser because let's be valid. If magical darkness that was linked <laughs> to only one possible person murdered my abuser, I would probably also think that one person was pretty great. I Although mean, he, once I lived if, in the Darkling's head, I will admit I didn't end up enjoying the Darkling's POV more than I thought I would. Not because I liked him, but because I was like, wow, what a shit bag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's why my take on Biggest Loser is actually like, sorry, not sorry, Darkling fans. Biggest Losers. Rip. You should never have liked him. Rip. Rip. <laughs> like, I don't even know like what to say about that. Like, <laughs> Y'all trash. Goodbye. <laughs> and I think that's why, because Nami, you were saying that like, uh, people got the book early and like Darkling fans were like panning it and now I'm like oh I get why now because he's like you see into his awful head and you realize that he is really just awful. straight up no. awful. No, you want to know the best thing? You want to know the best thing? They still fucking like him. They still think he's the best. They were like of course the, of course, Alex was the only one who could save Rapka. Zoya couldn't do it. Nikolai couldn't do it. Of course it was Alex. I mean, and here, like, here's the thing. He does. He does help. He helps. But in his, like, you're in his head as he's helping, and his whole point of view is like, I'm helping because I'm gonna be the best. I'm helping because I'm gonna be the martyr, the saint. Blah blah blah. Like, well, I'm he was also helping. He was also helping because he thought Nikolai would get killed and he could then r r run to the rescue. Yeah, there, there's literally nothing. It's like it's it's all self-serving bullshit. So Darkling fans, yep. sorry, not sorry. He sucks. Um, He's the worst. So I actually had him. I actually had the Darkling under neither because he did achieve his goal of a Ravka safe for Grisha with a Grisha monarch, and he's revered as a saint. But he is not the monarch, and that eternity of torture is quite a drag unless he's a closeted masochist. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong there. You're not wrong there. I'm not, but that's the thing. I'm not saying the Darkling is a loser. I'm saying people who are Darkling stands who think he's like the god yeah. of everything. They're they're the. I don't, I don't like to call actual real life people losers, but come on, y'all. No, like. Tara, oh, like, like he lost. Tara, he lost. I have ventured into that area of Twitter very reluctantly recently. It is a terrifying and disgusting place filled with a lot of victim blaming and saying that Genya deserved it. Okay. And yeah. it is a horrifying yeah. place, and these people fucking deserve to lose. Like, good fucking riddance. Bye bye, yeah. Darkling fans. GTFR. Bye bye. <laughs> bye bye. bye, bye. <laughs> All right. Um, my, my final one was Nina. Sure, the happy ending with the handsome prince, but she has to live in Fjorda without waffles. 
<laughs> and also in that horrible body that she hates. But but again, we don't know that that will be her forever life. So there's that at least. And maybe yeah. now that they are really feared, uh, they can import waffles. <laughs> One would she's, gonna, she's gonna call up Inej and be like, "Hey, hey, hey!" In the midst of your like slave ship destroying, can you just bring me some waffles? And I'm pretty sure Inej would waffles. actually do it because, yeah, like, at the end, at the end of the book, oh my god! At the end of the book, I forgot about this. At the end of the the whole like meeting in Ravka, and they're like, "Oh, Inej, you went away with the Ravkan prince and that woman," and I'm like, "Ah, yeah, she did." Because <laughs> <laughs> Inej wants to hang out with Nina and Hana. You love it. I love it. it. Okay. And on that note, you guys, it is actually under two hours. Shocked and appalled. (laughs) Yeah, shocked and appalled that we have made it this far and discussed everything we wanted to discuss and somehow did not break our two hour rule. Last thoughts, anything before I close this out? I mean, I, I liked, okay, last thoughts, I, I liked this book. Like, I yeah. there, I have complaints about it. Um, I, I I honestly think that this, I, they could have, either Lee could have left the Darkling out and it would have been a more solid duology, or um, she could have continued to include him and it would have been a better trilogy. But as it, as it goes, um, I, I mean, yeah. I, I couldn't put it down. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't. I don't get how you how Zoya evolves into a dragon without the Darkling being in in these books, though. That is fair. I think a lot of Zoya's final. I think a lot of Zoya's drive to harness Juris's powers is so she can stop the Darkling. So I think that's a very good point. So you know what? I was firmly Team Terra. I don't understand the purpose of the Darkling in this book, but now I am Team. Nope, other right, Jonathan. What? Goddamn! Now I am Team Jonathan. <laughs> The Darkling was necessary for Terra for wow for, Tara, for Zoya's journey. <laughs> for Terra's journey, the Darkling was necessary for Terra's journey. Thank you. Awesome. The Darkling was necessary so Terra could become a dragon. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, Terra the dragon. Have fun with that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm Team Jonathan now. I see uh, it. I see it. So Nick, how'd you feel at the end of it all? I loved it. I mean, like you said, there were problems. Uh, my biggest issue was definitely with the whole white passing thing. Uh, but overall, like I, and, and so I, I listened to it as a, a, a audible thing. Um, so I wasn't reading it, but like, I was just devouring this. Um, and as Tara can attest, cause I would message her, especially as I got towards the end, like, there are just so many things that I was like, wait, what? And this, and this, and, and that. I had to I try so hard not to spoil you about. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Joran being the guy Tara, who killed Matthias. I was like, wait, is Joran the one who killed Matthias? And this was like when they first introduced Joran. And <laughs> Tara very played it very well and uh and so then well i mean and, and I, the thing is i didn't lie i would have had a problem true. if i had to have lied but like i honestly don't remember if we ever hear the name joran in crooked kingdom like when matthias when when he gets shot and when he's dying we might have i legitimately don't remember so it was like I super easy for so. me to like i have no idea yeah. i actually don't remember that <laughs> yeah, no, so, yeah i i uh, love that that was so great. And and so then I was messaging Tara again when the reveal happens, being like, it is! Uh, 
so those are the kinds of things that like that that tells me that it's a good book. When I'm that like thinking about all these different plot points and uh, that happened, you know, technically in a different series within the universe, and then also you know I'm getting that excited about those things. Like that's just a good book. I really enjoy. Yeah. yeah, I I love this book too. I. I gave it four stars. It would have been a five-star read if not for Word Passing Zoya, which sounds like a yep. kind of absurd thing to take away a whole star on, but you know, it, it is very personally important to me. So I, I can do what I want. It's my own goddamn star rating. And <laughs> I also I will mention that like while I loved everything in this book, the Joran storyline I actually really enjoyed because you know, yeah. one thing that I did mention was that. I didn't like the end of Matthias' story because even though I never liked Matthias and even though I never fully trusted him or believed in him, I wish I could have, he had started on his journey to growth and I wish I could have seen the end of that. But we never got to see that. And the fact that we do get to see that with Joran and that Joran has experienced so much guilt about this and that Matthias, you know, his life still does no, matter. He bought, he bought finger bones that he knows are fake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it was just he so suspects are fake. Suspects. <laughs> it was, okay. It, it was so surprisingly <laughs> impactful in a way that I know everybody who is a actual Matthias fan wanted Matthias's story to end. That I think Lee, you know, was once again really listening to the fans because a whole lot of Matthias fans were just like, he died just as he was getting better. Like, why? Like yep. the story wasn't over. And I think the fact that Lee continued his story within Joran was so good and so lovely and so important. And it was just, you know, an unexpected thing of heart and an unexpected thing to come back to a character that I hated who didn't get to visibly grow and show us that he could grow, but managed to still grow enough to help somebody actually grow. And I just, we love growth in this house, guys. Hashtag. We do. We love growth Hashtag. in this house. All right. Well, on that note, once again, I'm Tara along with Nick, Jonathan, and Nami. Thank you again for joining us for Sagas and Sass, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.